podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80sruled.com for more 1980s awesomeness. Did the best 1980s movies make the worst TV shows? Learn it, know it, live it. Once again, it's time for the 80s. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. <laughs> For me? Nah. nah, I was just enjoying the theme song. Oh, yeah, the short one. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of. Hmm. I don't know. The only thing coming to mind is couch potatoes. A couple of couch <laughs> potatoes. What about a couple of summer school students? That'll work. A couple of summer school students. I'm just going to leave all this in. <laughs> uh, my name is Will, and joining me, as always, is my friend and my co-host, Ray. Why is this the hardest part of the show? Because <laughs> it's I think it's the one we have the least pre- amount of preparation. Yeah. Hey, today on the show, we're going to be talking about movies you forgot became TV shows. And you probably did because, you know, they were terrible, so they should be forgotten. But for one, because one show in particular starred our guest today, Mr. Dean Cameron, who will be joining us a little bit later on the show. And of course, you know and love him from a number of different things throughout the 1980s, including summer school, where, you know, I don't know, he inspired a number of people, seriously, in real life to pursue, or at least dream of pursuing special effects makeup in movies. I know I was inspired as a kid to want to do that too. I didn't. Yeah, who didn't want to do special effects who grew up in the 80s? Was it all because of chainsaw in summer school. It could be a big part of it. But hey, before we get to any of that, please don't forget to like and subscribe and rate and review the podcast because it really helps folks find out about all this amazing 1980s content. Oh yeah. All right. Hey, let's get caught up on 80s news. Speaking of turning movies into TV shows, we learned that American Gigolo was being adapted into a TV series for Showtime. Hmm. The Showtime version will star John Bernthal, Gretchen Maul, and Rosie O'Donnell. Of course, we love John Bernthal as the Punisher and a number of other things as Shane in The Walking Dead. He was great in that and a number of films. The series is said to be an update of the 1980 film noir classic that starred Richard Gere and Lauren Hutton. The original film was produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, and he is actually going to be involved in the production of this new television show as well. I don't remember the movie very well, so quite honestly, I had to read uh, about the story to remember. I remember that Richard Gere was naked, because we talked about that as being groundbreaking a few weeks ago. Yeah. I remember that uh, Giorgio Moroder, the disco king, wrote the theme song, Call Me, for it, and then uh, pitched it to a number of people, including Blondie, who ultimately collaborated with him on it and recorded it for the film. I remember talking to Harold Faltemeyer about that, um, but I, don't, I couldn't tell you what the story was. Uh, well, this is one of those movies where I just make up the story. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I don't feel like watching it. Mm. All right. American Gigolo. So American Gigolo is about a college kid mm-hmm. who also makes money sleeping with older women oh. mm-hmm. to put himself through college. So that's what I assume the story is. Okay. <laughs> a good portion of that's probably correct. What I know only from reading this article and from Googling some stuff about the original film is that John Bernthal will play the Richard Gere part, which is a character named Julian Kay. And in the Showtime series, Julian Kay is introduced 18 years after he's been arrested for murder and struggling to find his footing in the uh, back in the sex industry while seeking the truth to figure out what happened that led him to go to prison in the first place. 
Isn't it the murder? <laughs> well, yes, but he, okay. He didn't do it, I guess. I don't know that it says it in this. Let's see. Well, see, okay, this is coming from Deadline. While seeking the truth about the setup that sent him to prison all those years ago. Oh. Okay, there you go. And so I had to Google what the original film was about. And it turns out the Richard Gere character was framed for murder, I think, of one of his clients. Hmm. And he believed he was being framed. Now, this is the weird thing. So he's being framed for murder. He believes he's being framed by his pimp, I guess. I think a character named Leo, played by Bill Duke. And so he confronts Leo and says, hey, I know what's going on. Leo says, hey, I'm not going to help you. Who cares? I don't like you. Screw you. Whatever. And so he shoves Leo off of the balcony. Leo grasps on for his life and he tries, he regrets what he did. So he tries to save him. But Leo, meanwhile, just falls to his death and dies. Hmm. I don't know if the film ends with him going to prison for either of those murders, but he definitely murdered somebody. So this whole thing about being set up, yeah, with regard to the client, but he really murdered a dude. So, So is this like a sequel then? Yeah, it seems like they're making it such. Now, the timing doesn't like, line up exactly. But I'm just saying, it seems like he's out of prison. Yeah. So uh, this seems kind of like a sequel. Yeah. Which is, if you fudge the numbers a little bit, that works. Yeah, it says it's a reimagining. But yeah, he went, you're right. In the showtime, he went to prison for murder. And in the movie, it ends with him, you know, being accused of this, of the murder of the woman, not the murder of the pimp. I don't know. Yeah. I was one of those movies that's too young to see or care about. And even in retrospect, it's not something I want to go back and see. Yeah, it's not on my list of have to see movies. And considering some of the garbage I watch, yeah. you'd think that would have <laughs> made the list. But yeah. no, Rocktober Blood got the call this weekend instead of that movie. <laughs> yeah, Yes. I, I was shocked it hasn't murdered it all, ended it all. I just thought it was a movie about a, you know, male prostitute. That's what I thought it was. Okay, hey, in other 80s news, I've got some bad news for you. Kathleen Kennedy is not being replaced by John Favreau, Dave Filoni, or George Lucas, says Disney CEO. So you remember months ago, we had those rumors swirling about that as a result of The Last Jedi and Solo, all these poor performances of Star Wars films and the fan backlash against some of them, Kathleen Kennedy was getting the boot and a number, someone else was taking over, most likely Dave Filoni or John Favreau, some combination, maybe even George Lucas was coming back. The current CEO of uh, Disney, Bob Chappick, I'm going to say, was asked directly on a shareholder's call just a few days ago about the fate of Kathleen Kennedy. And he seemed shocked, according to folks on the call. And he said, quote, we've been absolutely thrilled that we can have the kind of talent like Kathleen Kennedy to direct Lucasfilm. We look forward to having Kathleen Kennedy running Lucasfilm for many years to come. Hmm. Disappointed. No, well, that doesn't sound right because there was a talk of, of the buyout because she wanted to make that girl power thing she was working on. Mm-hmm. So I think this is I, I think this is like when a sports team says, mm-hmm. we love Carson Wentz, and then they trade him. Mm-hmm. They give him a bunch of money, and then they trade him anyways. And they, they say, yeah, he was great, but so maybe they can trade her to <laughs> Fox or yeah. <laughs> I, I still think she's out. I still think, I think they're getting rid of her. That's, now you're starting the rumors. I think originally it was started by, we got here. this covered and now you're, you know. You know what? Yep. Here you go. Yep. This is what's going to happen. This is all just a safe face move and she's going to resign. <laughs> Folks, that is not news. That just raised 100% conjecture. What I read you is the news story. Yeah, yeah. When I'm right, you're uh-huh. going to have to say, yep, you were right. See, this is Ray's move. He's just going to always <laughs> say it's not true indefinitely. Mm-hmm hoping that it becomes true, and then he could say he was right. But if he's wrong, you're not going to hear him say that. He's just going to say, I'm not right yet. <laughs> well, that's how it works. He keeps pushing it down. <laughs> hey, 
Hey, I don't mind her being in charge. Look, I, we've talked I about do. this before. I've had mixed feelings about those Star Wars movies, but I don't know if you could put it entirely on her shoulders. But once again, and I, I, I blame I blame her for the decision to have multiple directors in the mm. trilogy that she was doing. I think that was a huge mistake. Eh, maybe, but it works for Marvel. Yeah, they still have the same people in charge, though. Well, well, yeah, but I mean, Kevin Feige oversees it and says... Right, and he's telling them what they're going to do. Yeah, they don't have gotta, free reign. Right, so it's all going to line up with a certain overall vision. Right. Right. Yeah. No. It's not It's not like the DC. <laughs> there were, oh, boy. There were definitely missteps, but so far it seems like she's in. In other 80s news, let's play... In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. Ah, damn it. <laughs> it's supposed to be fun. You're not supposed to curse it. It doesn't feel like fun. Then. All right, let's, let's do it. <clears throat> All, right, we're All right, I'm in. We're I'm catching in. up this, on a... This is fun. You're going to like this, this is, one. This is fun. This is fun. I like fun. Yes. <laughs> He's talking to himself anyway. Hey, uh, this is... We're catching up on an old story, but I didn't want to let to go too far before we... we uh, touched base on this because, uh, so according to Guitar World, back in October, it had been reported that two of Eddie Van Halen's electric guitars and EVH Charvel? Charvel. 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 Charvel Art Series Electric and a red, black, white Kramer built by Ed himself. And I know you can picture that one. So it looks like Frankenstrat? Yeah, he calls it the Frankenstrat. Frankenstrat. That's what it looks like. Anyway, back in October, they were going to go, about to go on auction, and they were expected to fetch between forty and eighty thousand dollars each at Julian's Icons and Idols Trilogy Rock and Roll Auction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Auctions took place in December in Beverly Hills and online, and now we have some price tags for these two guitars. Which one do you think sold for more, the red, white, and black Kramer, or the uh, EVH Charvel Art Series, which is a black and white guitar? I'm going to go with the, the Frankenstrat. Okay. And I'm going to say, since he built that one himself, I'm going to say that sold for 250000 Wow! That's so close! You would have overpaid, though, because it sold for $231,250, but that was super close. My goodness. The customized Kramer was the top-selling item of the event, built by Van Halen with his guitar tech, Matt Brock, at the guitarist's 5150 Home Studio, it was gifted to Van Halen's friend Brian Cush, the owner of Cush's Centenary Oyster House in Shreveport, uh, Louisiana in 1991. It is inscribed, Yo, Brian, let's get shucked up. <laughs> and it was displayed at the bar, and, and Eddie would play it whenever he was uh, visiting. Okay, what do you think the Black and White Charvel Art Series sold for, knowing it was sold for less? I'm going to say that one went for... A hundred and twenty-seven thousand. Holy cow! You're getting really good at this. <laughs> nice. That one sold for a hundred and forty thousand eight hundred dollars. I'd have got it for a steal. <laughs> yes, that, yeah. You would have made up for both. You know, yeah. uh, over the two items. That features a Strat style headstock numbered on the back uh, with a number nine uh, fifty-four, and it's got a black and white abstract design like the Frankenstrat, but it's black and white instead of red, white, and black. And it's signed Eddie Van Halen, initialed VH04. And I thought this was the coolest thing. This guitar also features evidence of a cigarette burn on it. Oh, oh man. He loved the smoke. So, you know, that's that's authentic right that would there. Be cool. At the auction, they also sold the prop red, black, and white guitar used by the child actor, Brian Hitchcock, who was playing the young Eddie Van Halen in the Hot for Teacher music video. Oh, man. That one sold for $50,000. Man, that would look good on the wall. Because you can't really get any sound out of it or anything. Yeah, that would be super cool to have anyway. Mm-hmm. got to get one of those GoFundMes going in for this stuff. <laughs> hey, that was 80s News. Dun, 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 dun. Ugh. I think that's the best I ever did on the guessing game. That was huge, yeah. And you look at that. You didn't. You were putting it down at first. 
Yeah, I didn't think I'd get in the neighborhood because usually it's like something weird. Oh, no. No, you were there. I knew. Yeah. Hey, this is your, you know, it's your uh, wheelhouse, as they say. Mm-hmm. Today on the show, as we mentioned just a short time ago, we're going to be talking about movies that became TV series. You know, ones that you forgot about, though, because they were garbage. <laughs> well, yeah. There's some good ones, though. And later on the show, we're going to be joined by Dean Cameron. You know him from many things throughout the 1980s, including playing Chainsaw in summer school. He was also in Rockula, Ski School, Ski School 2, Bad Dreams. And he was in the TV series adaptation of Fast Times at Richmond High, Fast Times. He was the only person brave enough to take on the Sean Penn role. And Sean Penn had, you know, uh, he left behind, uh, what would you say, like uh, big, not big shoes, big... Uh, big big slip-ons. Big, yeah, big vans. Quite a pair of big vans to fill. And he filled them. Okay, before that, though, let's let's talk about 80s. Smash Man is 2021. We only got a couple decisions to mm-hmm. make here. Two matches left. Folks yep. who want to hear us make the final determination of the championship, you can tune in on Facebook Live this Friday, March 26th. So here we go. This is the final four. We got Matrix mm-hmm. versus Braddock. Matrix is, of course, John Matrix, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character from Commando, and James Braddock is Chuck Norris's character from Missing in Action and all those films. Uh, here's how I looked at this, okay? Yeah, okay. Arnold's big, mm-hmm. or I mean Matrix. Yep. We're talking about the character, well, not, sure. the, not the guy. So, but right. Matrix, yep. big, not as mobile mm-hmm. as Braddock. Right. I, I had to pick Braddock on this one. Uh, yep. I think he's quicker. Yep. I think if it come down to a fist fight, he'd get him. This was a tough one. Yep. I went back and forth, but I think Braddock comes out on top on this one. Yeah, he hasn't, Matrix hasn't in our bracket so far, has not faced someone with martial arts skills. You know, he went up right. against uh, Rambo and they were sort of similarly matched as far as skills, but then he's got the size on uh, Rambo. Mm-hmm. Before that, he went against Indiana Jones. He's got the size on Indiana Jones. I agree with you. You don't see Arnold Schwarzenegger spinning around and jumping and kicking and stuff like that. He's just blocking no. a punch and then punching back. I do think right. James Braddock, yeah, as played by Chuck Norris, could bob and weave and get in there and give him the business. Work his speed bag, so to speak. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. This one was tough, yep. but I think Braddock's the winner for me on this one. All right. Hey, I thought maybe we would disagree about that. All right, cool. Yes. Uh, that brings us to Crease mm-hmm. versus Ryder. Mm. Now, I know all through this thing, I've said how crafty Ryder is. Yeah. But Crease. Yeah. Is a is a military man. Mm-hmm. He's a kung fu man. Yep, and he comes with a with a motto: mm. strike first, strike hard, right. show no mercy. Yeah, you can't imagine Ryder's got a motto or any kind of philosophy <laughs> except just no. And then the more I thought about it, at the end of the movie, he kept begging the dude to stop him. Mm. So if he asked Crease to stop him, it's yeah. not going to end like the the hitcher did. Crease yeah. would have grabbed him out of the truck, yeah. beat his. And save the day. Even though he's the bad guy, that was how that would have ended. Yeah. I mean, you talk about Ryder being conniving or crafty. Crease is that and then some. I mean, the way he manipulates people and, you know, if you mm-hmm. look, look at him throughout the series of Karate Kid movies, including when he teams up with Terry Silver, you know, I mean, the, just the psychological games they play. And yeah, I think yeah. he's up there with Ryder, plus has the martial arts skills and strength. And since Ryder's asking people to stop him, I, I think this one goes to Crease. All right. Look at that. Two uncontroversial, at least for us. We get people on Facebook are going to be complaining. Ah, they're they're going to be, they're all mad anyways. (laughs) 
you screwed me, man. I thought Mama Fratelli was going to take this whole thing. Right. <laughs> right. All right, cool. Hey, if you've got thoughts about that. Mail them to Santa Claus. No, hey, you can go over to Facebook and visit us there at The Idiots. And in fact, if you're really brave, you can go to the lower level to the rumpus room where the listeners of the show chat and participate in what happens on upcoming episodes, what's happened on past episodes, et cetera, and so on. All right. Hey, let's talk about some terrible TV. Let's do it. When we talk about the 1980s, when I talk about the 1980s with people that aren't as into it as we are, even our peers, but certainly younger people and older people are like, ugh, so much garbage in the 1980s. And I disagree immediately. And I say, you know, look, hey, the fact that we are set out to prove objectively that the 1980s was the best decade doesn't mean everything was good. It just means as a whole we had more great content than any other decade. So we're going to have bad TV shows. And I think these are more emblematic of what people think of, you know, some stuff that came out of the 1980s. And look, we know there were good ones. Yeah. We just, that's not what this episode's about. We'll talk about those on another episode. Because uh, I know you love Alienation and we love uh, Highlander was huge, etc. and so on. So instead, let's talk about some bad ones. Except for one, because the one we're going to talk about that was really good, also included our guest today. Okay, let's talk about Ferris Bueller. All right, Ferris Bueller. The Ferris Bueller, the TV show, is based on the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. See what they did there? They left off the day off. Smart. And the film came out in 86, written and directed by John Hughes, of course. This is one of those films that he, you know, wrote supposedly in a week. He was incredibly prolific. Starred Matthew Mm -hmm. Broderick, Mia Sara, and Alan Ruck. And the TV show just came out a few years later, right? Ferris Bueller. Started in 90. I do remember this show, and I do remember it. I do remember a few things about it offhand. I remember the actor who played Ferris, because he had been in 18 again with George Burns, Mm -hmm. Charlie Schlatter. Yeah. Also about that show, Jennifer Aniston played his sister, the Jennifer Grey character in the film. When Friends finally came out, it was, oh, that's the actress, you know, the actor (laughs) we had seen in Ferris Bueller, that terrible show that didn't last very long. Yeah, and and Mickey Dolenz's daughter, Amy Dolenz, who is also very beautiful, got to play Sloane. I was a huge fan of the monkeys. Mm -hmm. I was more a fan of Mike Nesmith than Mickey Dolenz. But when he had a daughter that was then becoming successful, and, you know, she was gorgeous, like you said, it seemed so cool to me. Yeah, well, I love all the monkeys. I mean, they're, they're just cool, man. That show was awesome. Yeah. And you know about Amy Dolan's, <laughs> speaking of our guest today, she was in Miracle Beach with Dean Cameron. Yes, she was. And that's a fantastic movie. And Dean Cameron says, you know, I read, I read this uh, in an interview. He said that he thought the premise of uh, Miracle Beach was ridiculous because in it, Amy Dolan's plays a genie that is trying to help him get the girl of his dreams who's a model. Mm-hmm. And he said it was ridiculous because, you know, paraphrasing what he said was, as soon as his character met Amy Dolan's, he wouldn't be interested in any other woman. That's what I thought too. Yeah. The big problem the show had was yep. Parker Lewis can't lose. I loved Parker Lewis. First, eh, I could do without it. Parker Lewis was awesome. I loved that show. Yeah, they're very close to the same thing. Right. But it seems like Parker Lewis had better writers, mm-hmm. so the stories were better. Yeah. I found a quote in the Sun Sentinel from 1990, and they said, NBC did what you're supposed to do. It paid for the right to make a series out of the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Fox did it the sleazy way. It ripped off that film for its series, Parker Lewis Can't Lose. But there's a problem with the moral lesson to be learned here. Fox's Parker Lewis is a much, much, much better show. (laughs) I also found it quite odd that on Parker Lewis, his girlfriend's name is Annie Sloan. Yeah, it's like they made no secret about the fact that they were ripping it off. Yeah, You know, thinking about the first Bueller show, it was kind of neat how they tied it to the film. 
by saying that the film was a movie about the real life Ferris Bueller, which the TV show was supposedly showing the real Ferris Bueller. And he went so far as to show how displeased he was with Matthew Broderick's portrayal of him by taking a chainsaw to a cardboard cutout of Matthew Broderick, I think in the first episode. A lot of the critics were complaining that he seemed more nefarious Mm. in the TV show. Right. Whereas Broderick played him as more of a happy-go-lucky, things-just-kind-of-fall-my-way kind of character. Right. And the TV version is more of a Zach from Saved by the Bell. Right. Who is not a very nice guy that does a lot of bad things. In the end, First View only runs for 13 episodes. Parker Lewis runs for three seasons, 73 yeah. episodes. All right, let's move on to another one. Gung-ho. I did not remember this one. Yeah, I didn't either. I was going to say maybe because it happened too early in the 80s. The film came out in 86. Of course, the film was written by Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, who wrote a number of hit films, including quite a few for Ron Howard, who directed the film. They also wrote Night Shift, uh, Splash, Parenthood. Mm-hmm. The film stars Michael Keaton and uh, Getty Watanabe. <laughs> Getty Watanabe, who, of course, you know, we probably first met as Long Duck Dong in uh, 16 Candles. Mm-hmm. But you had a number of other folks in the fil- film. George Went, Mimi Rogers, John Tutoro were in there. And then we get the TV show. Yeah, movie come out in March of 86. And by December, this thing's on the air. So, hmm. You gotta wonder, like, what in the planning that they thought it's going to be successful enough that we could turn this into a TV show? <sighs> You know, I, I don't know if the TV show was all that bad, to be honest, because it had Scott Bakula. True. Clint Howard came in. Clint, yeah, who was also in the film, of course. And then almost every Japanese cast member came back for the TV show. Including Getty Watanabe. So, like, they had a core. Like, it should have done well, but you, but unfortunately, you know the time slot they stuck this thing in? I'm guessing, just based on what you're saying, that Dallas had something to do with it because they ruined every show that stood a chance in the 1980s. Not only did they debut up against Dallas, yeah. Miami Vice was also on the same night they debuted. Mm. Could you ask for a more harsh place to land? You know, it's during that time period where American workers were afraid of robots taking their jobs. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, uh, foreign companies buying up American companies and taking them over. Pretty much what's represented in this film. So I could see how it would be popular because it would sort of leverage those anxieties we're feeling. But yeah, going against those powerhouses, don't stand a chance. And, and once again, who's in charge of this f- network that yeah. does something like that to a brand new show? Yeah, unless he wanted to tank it. Maybe it was like, look, we're uh, not going to waste a good show against these people. Let's just burn out some shows we've got contracts with. Or or he was on the, the payola from the other oh. network. Mm. <laughs> he was a mole. He was he, a Kathleen yeah. Kennedy of that era. He was the inside guy. More rumors <laughs> that Ray's starting. All right, hey, let's talk about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oof. Of course, yeah. the movie was released in 1989, written by Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson and directed by S- Stephen Herrick. Of course, we were also at that time introduced, for the most part, to Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, who had made appearances in other things, but... Most, at that time, certainly most well-known for that. Now, we're not talking about the animated series because there was an animated series right. in 1990 that featured the original actors returning to their roles to do the voices, for the first season at least. The original writers, uh, I mentioned Matheson and Solemn, pitched their idea for a live-action TV series to Fox, but the network passed on them in favor of Darren Starr, who created Beverly Hills, 90210, Melrose Place, Sex in the City. Starr wrote the pilot, which never aired. <laughs> And instead, then they brought in this other gentleman named Clifton Campbell, who actually ultimately developed the show. The show didn't have a big enough budget to do anything worth watching. Yeah. And 
if you have two guys who are just acting dumb, mm. yeah. which is what these two guys, they were trying to imitate the characters right. that Keanu and Alex had created, but they weren't even close. Yeah. They, they weren't as likable. I mean, we all have that friend who's not very smart, <laughs> but, he's but we love him because his heart's in the right place. Yeah. These guys weren't like that. They were yeah. just annoying. The series was first supposed to debut during the 91-92 television season, but... They delayed it to wait and see if Bogus Journey would make a profit. Once Bogus Journey made enough money, then they finally aired it in June of 92. But you're right. I, I did read that the the gentleman who was the writer, and I don't know if they called them showrunners back then or not. I think the writing room was probably a little bit different as based on our conversations with Don Todd some time ago. Mm-hmm. He he described it in the way you did as sort of being, you know, these characters who, who were not smart. But unlike the film, he also said the characters didn't evolve. They never grow. They don't change. Which in the film, that's not true. They're different by the end. And uh, the, the, the cast, we should say, even though you never heard of these folks, you know, unfortunately for them, probably ever again, included Evan Richard and Christopher Kennedy as Bill and Ted. However, you did have Rick Overton in there, who played the George Carlin part. You had Don Lake, Lisa Wilcox, a bunch of actors in there that you ultimately would go on a bigger success than the show. But about the character, Evan Richard said... Quote, we felt like we were playing a couple of idiots. Yeah, well, they did a good job of that then. It's just like our show. Yeah. Alex Winter was asked about the show in Arsenio Hall in 1991, and he didn't want to say anything. <laughs> and finally, he looks into the camera and says, I'm going to tell you the truth. Quote, it stinks, ladies and gentlemen. They really missed the boat. So ultimately, it only runs for seven episodes. It gets canceled because it's terrible. All right. How about Stir Crazy? I did not remember this at all. I got my notes right here. Yeah. Let me, let me find them for you. Well, I'll say this then while you're doing right. it. The film was released in 1980. It was written by Bruce J. Friedman. And I didn't remember this. It was directed by Sidney Poitier. Wow. That's crazy. I remember the film as a kid. It was one of the first like Betamax tapes we had. I could see like my dad's handwriting on it. Stir crazy. So <laughs> I watched it a lot. But it wasn't like the other Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder team-up films, which I think were, I think this was among the least funny of those films. And it, remember as a kid, it always seemed like a bummer to me because it had funny moments, of course, because the two of these guys were geniuses. But, you know, two guys go into prison for, for being wrongly, you know, accused of a <laughs> bank robbery. I remember as a kid feeling like, this is a bummer. But I definitely don't remember the TV show. I don't remember the TV show. I couldn't even find it online to watch it. <laughs> it's been destroyed. And... My notes, all it says is trash. <laughs> Wait, I waited for you to find that? Yeah. I just wanted to make sure I had it oh, right. Because, okay. you know, I took it, I took notes yeah. and I wrote stir crazy, yeah. trash. <laughs> and that's all I got. So the film came out in 80. The show doesn't come out till 85 on CBS, but it only lasts nine episodes. It's essentially a retelling of the story from the film. Two friends go to jail, like I said, are wrongly convicted and sentenced to 132 years in prison. Now, in the show, unlike the movie, they actually do escape and then start trying to hunt down the real killer. In the movie, they escape and they're just going to flee to Mexico. And then ultimately, at the end, they're cleared. Right. But you had two actors filling in for Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor that you never heard of. Again, unfortunately for these folks, Joseph Guzaldo was the Gene Wilder role and Larry Riley was Richard, uh, played the Richard Pryor part. A reviewer at the time, Joan Hanauer, called it the worst new comedy noting that, quote, the hour-long TV comedy has been as subtle as a pratfall and as funny as a cattle prod. <laughs> Man, a cattle prod is funny, though. Well, it depends on which end of it you are, you're on. Yeah, I guess. 
So let's let's talk about the show that uh, you know I guess first brought our guest today to notoriety, Fast Times. Mm-hmm. Of course, the movie was released in '82, written by Cameron Crowe, based on his own novel and directed by Amy Heckerling. It starred a number of uh, up and coming actors, including Judge Reinhold, Phoebe Cage, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Anthony Edwards. And of course, Sean Penn in an iconic role that would be, you know, he would be a breakout star after that film. We saw some other sort of uh, actors in there, of course, that were standards by then, including Ray Walston and Vincent Schiavelli. And then we get the TV show a few years later. The crazy thing is, is how did this thing not succeed Mm -hmm. with the cast they put together? Because you get Walston and Schiavelli from the movie to play the teachers again. Right. You, You don't get anybody from the cast. But you get Claudia Wells. Yep. You get Courtney Thorne Smith, yep. Patrick Dempsey, yep. and Dean Cameron. Yeah. Right there. Those are six actors who should have been able to make this thing work. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I did watch an episode. Um, I watched a number of things that Dean was in just to, you know, sort of reacquaint myself with some of the things mm-hmm. I hadn't seen in a while. And they're all great. And he's great in it, you know, again, being brave enough to take on this character that, again, by then was so iconic and just a sort of a career defining for Sean Penn. When I was a kid, I thought that's just how Sean Penn was. There was no chance to me yeah. that that was an actor. They got a real guy off yeah. the beach. Yeah, I, I would have thought that was his personality. And you had the same creative, unlike some of these other shows, you had the creative team behind this again, produced and directed mm-hmm. by Amy Heckerling, and Cameron Crowe was a creative consultant. This premiered yeah. in March of 86 on CBS, but it only ran for seven episodes. Yeah, and you had uh, Moon Unit Zappa brought onto the team to, to work on slang for the show because she had sung uh, Valley Girl. Isn't that hilarious? She had just graduated from high school when this came out. Yep. That's, that's brilliant. And the theme song written and performed by Oingo Boingo. Yep. But they also had writers who would write for Full House, The Lion King, and Shrek. Yeah. I mean, how did this thing not succeed? It, it It's crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, the biggest challenge it had, right, was having to clean it up for TV. Yeah. Of the reviews that I read of this show, that was the biggest complaint they had. How do you take a show about... High school kids having sex and doing drugs. Right. And put it on TV. Yeah. And have it resemble anything close to the movie. Right. And this is before you've got Dennis Franz showing his on uh, NYPD Blue. Things were really tight back then. A lot of uh, organizations looking to, you know, just police what was shown on television and films for that matter. So, yeah, that's all. That is a difficult trick to pull off. I did. I do have a quote from one review. This is a really succinct review invoking the name of another short-lived 80s series that we loved, Mike Duffy of the Detroit Press said, quote, with fast times, we have dull pegs. <laughs> well, I also found another great quote, uh, actually, it's for, some from Akron, Ohio. Oh, yeah. From the Akron Beacon Journal. I forget his name, but he said, fast times makes stir crazy look like television's answer to Ulysses. <laughs> <laughs> Was he talking about the stir crazy TV show the we just talked about? stir crazy TV show oh. we just talked about. That we can't even remember or find any footage of. Oh my god! He thought was he thought was superior to this. <laughs> but hey, uh, like you said, a lot of standout actors from the show, including our guest today, Dean Cameron, who also I forget what the review was, but they said he was the highlight of this show. I, yes. So that's cool. And hey, speaking of the highlight of that show, the highlight of our show is coming up because in a moment we'll be right back with our guest, Dean Cameron. <laughs> Our guest today, 
first gained notice when he deftly filled the especially large vans left by Sean Penn by playing Jeff Spicoli in the TV adaptation of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And although he also made appearances on many of our favorite 1980s TV shows, his breakout role was on the big screen as Francis Chainsaw Gremp, the academically challenged aspiring special effects artist in Carl Reiner's Summer School. Following that film, he continued to appear on the silver screen in a number of classic movies, including Bad Dreams, Rockula, Ski School, Men at Work, and Miracle Beach. Most recently, our guest has appeared in a number of popular TV shows and films, including It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Psych, and the NWA biopic Straight Outta Compton. In addition to acting, however, our guest is also an accomplished writer. He has written a feature film, songs for the hard-rocking 1980s throwback band Steel Panther, and a play based on a series of Nigerian prince scam emails he received. And soon, look for him with Billy Bob Thornton on upcoming episodes of Amazon Prime's Goliath. And to learn even more about our guest's accomplishments, because there are many, visit DeanCameron.com or follow him on Facebook. Please welcome to the show, Dean Cameron. Hello, hello. I was wondering, when you're recording some kind of joke, do you run into any technical problems? Because my co-host is frozen. (laughs) Um, No. He's stuck with a solo cup in his mouth. Which, I see him very often like that, so that's, he might actually still be just drinking. He's just drinking. Yeah, he's just drinking. This is one long sip. All right, so Ray may may join us at some point, fingers crossed. Or or not. (laughs) Yes. Thanks for speaking with us today. We, uh... We endeavor to show how special the 1980s was. We really truly believe that there hasn't been a decade, a 10-year span since like the 1980s. And maybe you'd have to go back to the actual Renaissance to find another period of time where there was just this influx of art and music and technology and globalization that, you know, really, I don't know, we had a something, a something or other. Yeah, it's a crazy time. It was innovative. Yeah. Yeah. And somehow that craziness begat a lot of good things. And we certainly believe that you were part of that. So taking it back, I know that uh, you, you first found your love for acting appearing with your father uh, at the age of six in a production that needed a child. And I guess that's how you get cast sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, it was total nepotism, yep. complete nepotism. <laughs> what everybody hates about Hollywood. <laughs> exactly. And it, but it was Santa Barbara, so it's yeah. very different. Oh, so had your dad, had you grown up at that point, even at that young age, watching your dad uh, acting and pursuing acting or being interested in the theater? I knew he was, I, I knew he was in it and I think he and my mom met doing a play in, in Kansas city or something. Mm. But, but after that he had tried to, he came to Hollywood for a year to try to be an actor and didn't work out very well for him. And he went back to Santa Barbara to teach. He taught high school, uh, English and drama and tap dancing. Um, no kidding. Yeah. But the, he said it can't be done. Hmm. He said, no one, it, it's impossible to make it as an actor. And I thought, okay, well that's, a, that seems like a fine challenge. <laughs> that I will uh, just ru- ruin my life trying to prove you wrong, sir. And uh, so, yeah, so when I got out of high school, I, I, I lived with my mom in, in in Oklahoma. And so I, after I got out of high school, I moved to, to, to LA and didn't prove him wrong for a while. And then I found- <laughs> so, so, and was it, was it really a matter of that? Uh, you know, we were just talking before the show about raising kids and some of those challenges that you were you were getting that at the age where maybe you felt like you needed to separate from your father. I know I know kids go through this because I'm, I'm fearing it. 
Uh, when you start yeah, yeah. creating these sort of boundaries and you need to hate the parents because then you can be an individual. And was it really somewhat about yeah. that sort of believing it was a challenge or showing up your well, dad? Th- there was a little showing up my dad, but a lot of it was, um, I'm incredibly lazy. So <laughs> I, uh, I wasn't very good in school and I had friends, my friends in Santa Barbara during high school started coming to LA doing movies and TV shows. Right. And I, I visit my dad every summer and every Christmas and and Santa Barbara had a great summer theater program. So I started doing plays with these people and I, they were my peers. So I thought if they can do it, I can do it. And uh, it was the path, sort of the path of least resistance in a weird way, just to move to LA and try to be an actor. Um, So that's, that's why. And there was a little bit of a, you know, I'll I'll show you dad, but it was more, it was something I loved doing. So, yeah. Yeah. It's shocking to me that you would think if you, as you describe yourself, were lazy, that you'd pursue a career like acting. I mean, polar opposites. I mean, as you know, certainly now in your experience that uh, you have to have a certain, you know, tenacity and uh, stick-to-itiveness that lazy folks don't generally have. Uh, you know. <laughs> True. Yeah. I, I exaggerate to clarify, yeah. but um, it's, I mean, it, it, it beats working. Yeah. Um, when, <laughs> <laughs> when you, when, when you are a working actor, it's nice and it's, it's long hours and all that and can be difficult, but it's really, ultimately it's just making movies and TV shows and that's sort of dumb and silly, mm. but it's fun. And it's something it, it'd be great if everybody could do something they love doing. Mm. And I have been fortunate enough to do that right. for quite a while. And I stopped for a while. I, I stopped for about 10 years and worked as a, a front end programmer for the web. Um, sure at various, various companies doing nine to five stuff and, and realized after a while that it, the nine to five thing was not for me. And fortunately, by the time I wanted to end doing that, the people who'd grown up watching me started running showbiz mm. and uh, sort of brought me back in right. gently. Oh, it was nice. That's excellent. Yeah. yeah. It seems that you, you know, you got to Hollywood at an opportune time. I recall speaking with Diane Franklin about, uh, she was explaining to us how just around 1980, when you had Last American Virgin, Fast Times, they, for, they started, Hollywood started figuring out, hey, we should cast young people as young people. But prior to that, you know, you were arriving at Hollywood, it seemed like you still had old folks playing, you know, high school students. Right. And I, I think, I think the, the movie Fast Times really, really did it and showed that Hollywood, financially, you can make a movie for very little money with young people mm-hmm. who you don't have to pay a lot of money to. Oh, and then make a lot of money on your movie. And, and also Sean Penn really excited everybody about acting. And I think for a long time, people wanted to find the next Sean Penn, wanted to find the next young breakout actor. And, and right. so there, it was, it was sort of cool. It was, it was an exciting time. And, and he'd also really for young people made acting, a, brought a, a respect to it that hmm. maybe hadn't been around much for, for young people. I don't know. Right. Or, or maybe he didn't, I, but for me, he did. Yeah. Were you at that time already pursuing or studying acting? I know that at some point you are studying acting. Is Yes. Yeah. I, I was studying this woman, Stella Adler, who was a sure. old classic, you know, from the group theater and actor studio. And, uh, but I ended up at this place called The Loft where Sean Bennett had gone and was sort of in class with him. There were different classes and he was in one of the night classes. And uh, there were a lot of, like a lot of actors there from the eighties who yeah. were doing very, very well. So it was, a, it was an exciting place to be at that time. And I'm glad to be a part of it. 
Right. It's fine. So, you know, in short order, you know, it's almost a Hollywood story. You know, I know that you went through the, you know, certainly had to uh, pay your dues, as they say. And sometimes maybe you couldn't afford to pay your dues because you were working at a, as a parking lot attendant or, you know, otherwise uh, doing some other tasks. And I, I, I love this story about how, you know, your dad calls you and says, hey, if you'll go to college, I'll pay for it. But there's something that you just feel like I'm, things are just about to break for me. Right. Can you explain what after, you know, you'd been going at it for a few years already, what continues to give a young person optimism and it seems like in face well, of, you know, great odds? Yeah, well, I, I was fortunate. I, I was roommates with Eric Stoltz and Ali Sheedy. And so, well, I, I was working at the Chinese theater as an usher making three seventy five an hour mm-hmm. and Ali was doing bad boys and war games and Eric was just working all the time and, you know, he'd done fast times. Right. And so I knew that it could be done and I knew that it, it wasn't this faraway thing. It was like these people in my house who were, were friends, it's, it's an achievable goal. And also being in class with people that, who I saw in movies and TV, I just knew that it was a thing. And I'd been cast in a feature film that got shut down after three days because the producer had, abscond- had been, was wanted by the FBI for absconding. <laughs> with uh, with all money wow. in previous feature films. This one he actually wanted to make, but they caught up with him, so we shut it down. And then I got cast in a TV pilot and had been fired from it right. uh, after three days. And so I knew that I, I could get cast. Just keeping the job was the difficulty. And that after that, after the TV show, that's when my dad said, you know, maybe it's time to hang it up. I'm like, no, it's, mm. this is the year. Yeah, it was 1984, and I did this educational film called Facing It, My Friend's an Alcoholic. Mm. And uh, there was so much overtime that I made a lot of money on it. And I was working as a bartender at the time, or barback, sometimes bartender, basically barback. And I made all this money and I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to just study and really, really get into this class and, and do everything I can. And I moved to like two blocks from where the class was. And I had, I think, 6,000 bucks in the bank from this this. Uh, this educational film, I thought, this is, this is it. And at the end of this year, if it doesn't happen, maybe I'll revisit anything. But, and I ended up getting my first series, not getting fired. Mm-hmm. And, um, Bonus. and then the next 10 years or so were, were primo or were good. So it, it, it worked out for me yeah. happily. So it seems like within five years of being in Hollywood, you know, you've certainly, you, you, you starting to land roles more consistently and, mm-hmm. and very quickly you go from now, you know, you, you, you come up in this generation, as you mentioned, with other actors who, you know, became uh, icons as well throughout the 1980s and, and, and beyond. But at some point you start working with folks that are, have been more established. Um, you know, even in the job that you were fired from, you know, Bob Denver, you nearly get to work with Bob Denver. Um, the day I was supposed to work with him, yeah, right. I got fired. <laughs> Television royalty, really, essentially. Yeah. Ultimately, you're cast in Fast Times in the Sean Penn role. Um, but you know, this, the movie's been hot for, you know, a couple of, a few years by then, uh, Amy Heckerling is, you know, is, uh, is, is big business now at some point, are you intimidated by this sort of, you know, the, I guess the older folks that are, you're aware of that have been around? No. Hmm. Um, there is a, a beautiful ignorance of youth hmm. and oh. also, you know, if you're trying to be in movies and TV as a teenager, you know, I remember mean, I was 17 or my 20, early twenties, there is a a massive ego at play where you're going, I can be, I want people to look at me 40 feet big on a, on a movie screen. 
or I want to go, you know, at that time there were three channels and not that many shows. There were 50 shows on television at the time. Yeah. I want to be in one of those 50 shows. I can carry a movie. I can carry a TV show. So no, it's all this ignorance of uh, what you're trying to do was going on. So no, I was never intimidated. I was excited. Like my first movie I ever did it was directed by Carl Reiner. Sure. You know, that was a very exciting to me to work with him. You know, not that I consider myself a peer, but I consider myself able to work with someone like that, that I was, I was worthy of doing mm -hmm. that. And I think all the people around it, around me were as well in, in all the projects. I mean, cause you have to, cause I, I always, um, it's always interesting to me to see the early Beatles films yep. and, you know, they were the Beatles, right. And they were getting mobbed and swarmed, but there were these actors working with them who weren't, mm freaking out and trying to tear their hair out because it was a job. Yeah. So, you know, at that point I learned the respect for acting and the work and you're there to do the work and, and all these people have their careers and their livelihoods. They're counting on you. They're counting on this stuff. So you just have to go and you do your job and don't screw it up and go home and happy with it. And, and if you get to work with cool people like Carl Reiner or Mark Harmon or Bob Denver, so much the better. Yeah. I don't know if that made any sense. But yeah, I yeah it, it does, except I don't think that you give yourself enough credit because I was a young person once too, like a, you know, many, many years ago. And my anxiety outweighed my ego. There was always this right. sort of, you know, I don't know, sort of conflict between the two. And oftentimes the anxiety would prevail and I wasn't good enough. You know, I, I tried to make it as acting or, or you know, and then when I was a much younger person. And at some point, yeah, it became too much of that uh, feeling like I didn't have enough control over the product feeling like I didn't want to be putting myself out there to only to be judged on superficial things, you know, and then started pursuing yeah. other areas of entertainment. But so I wish I had that ego. That sounds fantastic. I mean, healthy. Right. Well, that's one of the, I mean, what you were talking about is one of the reasons I stopped doing, doing it for a while. I, I mean, part of it wasn't my choice. I, I stopped working I, um, as it happens. I wasn't getting the work I wanted. So that bluster and that ignorance gets for, for many people, uh, for lack of a better word, beaten out of you mm. through all the rejection and disappointment in the years of it. Cause you know, you don't get more jobs than you get. Right. I mean, the, the number of stuff I've read for is astronomical sure. in the thousands yeah. at least. And the jobs I've got maybe a hundred, I've gotten maybe a hundred jobs over the last 40 years. So that's a lot for an actor, but not a lot for the, the ratio is, is low. Yeah. And that's, the case of most people. I, I've said this a lot, but David Lee Roth is a great quote, which was, I don't get all the girls I want. I get all the girls who want me. I get all the girls who want me. Yes. <laughs> and it's the same with, uh, with showbiz is there's all these jobs I wanted to get, but ultimately they, it's not really in your control generally. And they pick you. Yeah. I think about it in any other career, you know, if I, if I had uh, went to like 10 interviews in a day and you know, nine of them told me get out, Oh, I think in any business, it would wear you down. Yeah. It's much, much more competitive in entertainment and probably so more so even now, be just be by sheer numbers and sheer, you know, channels of, of folks being able to produce content. Right. I think it, 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 I think it's a little less, well, there's not one carrot that everyone's chasing. Yeah. There's a lot of carrots now and a lot of ability to do stuff. And that's, I think that's good. Democratization. It means the the value is less, I guess, but uh, it's like the music business. So everybody can have a band and put a record out. Okay. Yep. Not a big deal. Very few make a lot of money at it. And that's life. Yep. And 
but there's, there are more opportunities to work now. I think that's good yeah. for more people. Yeah. Now, of course, you mentioned uh, working with Carl Reiner. Of course, that's from the iconic film Summer School, where many of us first came to know and, and, and uh, love you and love uh, your character of, of Chainsaw. It's my understanding that Amy Heckerling, again, who you worked with uh, on the TV show Fast Times Adaptation, was first set to direct the film. Carl Reiner ultimately took over. Did the tone of the film change? I mean, I, I could imagine it. Summer School will be more like Fast Times, maybe, but for Carl Reiner. Yeah, this, the, the Summer School script was darker. Hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a little edgier. And Carl Reiner sort of softened those edges, for, for better or worse. The best example is... The movie that Chainsaw and Dave were really into was Freaks, the Todd Browning movie. Oh, right. <laughs> Crazy, weird Todd Browning movie. And that was the movie we wanted showed, shown in the classroom. And there was this parallel of our class and Freaks and Outsiders and oh. Misfits. <laughs> uh, and it was a really nice thing. And I remember it wasn't on video. It was impossible to find on video. And, but they tracked down a, a copy of it and did a screening of it at Paramount and it ended and Carl Reiner goes, I'm not putting that movie in the fucking movie. <laughs> and, uh, and Jeff Franklin, the writer was over there and I sort of looked at him and, and Carl said, well, you'll just have him show, uh, shows Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Cause that, that makes sense. And as we were walking out of the screening room, I said to Jeff, I go, there's sort of a parallel between, and he's just, like, yeah. <laughs> oh no. So it, it yeah. but it's okay. I mean, it was, yeah. And there was more stuff about the Chainsaw and Dave alcoholism and mm. and all that stuff. And yeah, it was just a little edgier. But I don't know if the movie had would have had the longevity it has if it was as, as edgy as it was yeah. back then. Yeah, and probably and, it wouldn't have been able to avoid a comparison to Fast Times. That might have caused some challenges for it to break out the way it did as well. Right. I mean, it's okay. somewhere sort of somewhere between Fast Times and The Breakfast Club, I think. because um, mm. the Breakfast Club had that Edginess. Yeah. Yeah. Job I didn't get, by the way. Is that right? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Waiting to well, I'm waiting to <laughs> yes, hear. Yes. It, any, it, went, it went well. Any moment now. Yes, of course. Any, like, any moment. Yeah. You know, I, I heard what was it just a few years ago that uh, was it Adam Sandler's company had the rights to reboot it? Summer school. Yeah. Summer they, school. They keep they keep threatening to remake it. Threatening, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. We need yeah. that to just go away. Yeah. We, we we're constantly bemoaning the, you know, the attempts to just leverage our love of certainly eighties properties for to a new market by making a crappier film. Right. Well I would joke that they used to ruin great television series by making crappy movies out of them. <laughs> and now they ruin great movies by making crappy television series out of them. <laughs> Yes, but uh, yeah, they, were, they talked about doing a, a sequel a couple years after we did summer school and asked if I was interested. I said, yeah, I'll do it for a million dollars. And I never heard back. From <laughs> was that to avoid doing it or was that a serious it's sort of, I mean, I figured it would be worth a million dollars. Oh yeah. There you go. Yeah. In 89, 88 or 89 when they asked. And That's right. It'd be 10 million now, Hollywood. Are you listening? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. So in the 1980s, you know, things were a little more uh, in lanes. You know, we talked to Lila Robbins about this. You know, theater folks looked down on film folks. Film folks lived on, dipped down on TV. And there wasn't a lot of, allow you weren't really allowed to cross over. So it wasn't until later on that you were able to pursue, you know, writing for writing films, uh, writing music, uh, directing. Did you already have this ambition in the 80s, but you were sort of told to stay in your lane? Or was it just something that came later? There are a couple of things. One, I remember... I had a great acting teacher who said actors who want to start directing do that because they get bored 
with acting. And he said, that's their problem. And I, I took that to heart, but I got bored with acting. So I was like writing. And so I would, I was write stuff and it was okay. It wasn't great. I mean, it, writing is hard. I mean, <laughs> writing well is hard. Writing is easy, but writing well is hard. And so I'd, I'd write some scripts and, and got close to getting something made and get interest but it, it was it was there was sort of a condescending pat on the head like hey, you, you, that that's nice you're writing the screenplays <laughs> oh cute and there were people who managed to weave out of like ben stiller did really well early on writing his own stuff but it wasn't expected like it is now i mean everybody should do everything and oh. it's also good to do everything because that way you have less chance to be a jerk yeah. to a director or if you're a director to crap on the writer, everybody's right. collaborating and, and you can sort of make things better that way. But yeah, I, I it, there was a lot of stay in your lane. And then I started writing, stuff was got better. So my management started taking that a little bit more seriously. And that was nice, but but nothing really happened until... I mean, I got one feature made, which which is cool, but yeah, it took a long time. All right. So I'm going to include in the 1980s, Rockula, <laughs> even though it came out in 90, I know it was probably produced in the 1980s and or late 80s, I'm guessing, and probably the financial troubles of Canon shelved it for a long while, I imagine, because we know they were really yeah. struggling. And then anyway, they got back up on their feet briefly for, in the early 1990s, I think, but then we're dead shortly thereafter by 94, I think. Yeah. But Rockula, you're, you're showing at least us your musical talents. Of course we know today, Hey, you've had an interest in music seemingly well, much forever. Yeah. Does your interest in music even predate your interest in acting as a young child? No, I, I started acting when I was six. So and right. I started playing guitar when I was 14, 13 or 14. So, okay. but uh, during the eighties, you know, it was the guitar wars, right? So it was like Wheatley, Wheatley, Magicians Institute and all that stuff. And that was way too much for me. And I didn't have time to practice that much. So, or, or again, just too lazy to practice. So I switched to bass, uh, mm-hmm. but I still write stuff. But yeah, but Rockula it really ignited, reignited my love for playing music. And, and I ended up pl- starting a band with the guy who wrote some of the songs for the movie. It was not a good band at all, but, <laughs> uh, but it got me playing and got right. me interested in playing. And that led, you know, this other path that I've been able to explore for the last 30 years, which is weird. But, but yeah, the, the, the Rocky experience was heartbreaking for me because oh. that, there, there were a couple heartbreaking. I mean, after summer school, I got this big deal at Paramount and, and been just, just, just slamming it for years and years and thought, okay, this is it. And I knew that the chainsaw really sort of broke out of the movie and put me on the map. And then there was this big writer's strike and everything just came to a halt for over a year. And it really put the brakes on the career and, and sort of the heat that I had generated at the time. And, hmm. and Rocky came, I did bad dreams after summer school, but the, right. to slip that in. But Rocky was the first movie that I, I got to carry, right? It was right. number one on the call sheet on the title role. And then it was going to be a big deal. And then yeah, Canon, went under and it didn't come out for a couple of years and only on video. I think they played, it played in one theater in my hometown. Oh, coincidentally. Oh, uh, that's a coincidence. But yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a drag. So, and in the film, right, you, you I know you performed certainly, uh, and you contributed to some of the songs. Yeah. What was that? Making air- songs. Oh, I, of course. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, oh, songs. 
You're saying that Rapula is not a song? <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the one thing about Rapula, uh, Pendulette said that it had his one of his favorite couplets in all of music, which was, you can read the commentary by William Sapphire. He's the DJ and the vampire. <laughs> this is like a William Sapphire reference in it. Yes. <laughs> you don't get that. Yeah. Rap song. Yes. <laughs> but it's got to be, imagine, okay, again, so you're not intimidated. Now you've got... Tony Basil, you've got Tom Thomas Dolby, and the legendary Bo Diddley, who you're essentially in a scene jamming with. You yeah. know, you're doing the blues. Still, no, it's just a job. You're able to maintain. Yes, and and also, I was a little intimidated in that movie because it was my first, you know, carrying the movie, and and yeah. and also, we all knew we were doing a movie called Rockula, <laughs> and the traps that come along with that, and and. You think the movie's weird, the script was even weirder. So just trying to make sense of all that was was weird and difficult. Just navigating that. And it was a short, short shoes, I think five weeks, if if that. But you know, it was a good time. It the, all those were fine problems to have in the yep. world of problems in the in the universe. So I, I it's fun. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a quirky and fun movie and you know, some of the uh, some fantastic practical effects where it looks like you must have been dashing from one room behind a mirror to another yeah. because your double will, you know, we're following your double and there you are. You're, in, you're now you're in this other area. It's, it's, it's yeah. pretty fantastic kind of thing you don't consider, you know, on the first viewing and certainly not as a young person, but on a right. rewatch, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I've been posting, I, I found a whole stack of old pictures and I've been putting them on Instagram and there's a one with me and the director in one of the mirror rooms where he, I'm on one side and he's on the other side and, and just reminded me of that, of how mm. I had this double and I, he would be there and then I'd have to run around. And so you could see my face in both sides. It was really cool. Right. And, and that, a lot of that was the director of photography, this guy, John Schwartzman, who's now a huge, huge DP, but they did it all in camera. No, I mean, it was 80, whatever. There was no budget for special effects, like green screen or anything like that, or yeah. blue screen back then. But uh, so it was cool. It was, it was, that was really exciting and fun to be a part of that, figuring out how to do that. Cause sometimes we didn't know what to do. We'd just stand there and, well, maybe if I mm -hmm. went around or it's cool. Yeah. And there was no CGI kids. Well, not much to speak of. Not, Unless not. You, I guess you could have looked like Tron, some sort of blocky sort of. Yeah. Not, not for a, so. not for a $1 million Canon film. There was no. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, no. Well, Hey, they say parameters, you know, make you be more creative, you know, when you have those. Boundaries. Limitations. Yeah, your limitations. Feed your art. Yeah. So you love music. You're playing in bands. We, you know, a lot of folks often say to us, uh, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. No one's ever said this to me. Maybe one person has. That, <laughs> sure, you like the, 80, the 80s. It's because you were a young person during that decade, you know, and you, you became a man in that decade. You're a little bit older than I am. So although you were part of the 80s in that sense of part of our pop culture, was the music and film of the 1980s part of your coming of age, so to speak? Or do you hearken back to an earlier decade? No, I, I like movies from the 70s. My two favorite movies are Animal House and Apocalypse Now, which are, are quintessential oh. movies from the 70s. Mm. The music in the 80s, I didn't really like that much. I, I yep. was a metalhead only because I didn't like the alt stuff. I liked the punk. She there was punk in the early eighties and I went sure. to see some punk shows, but I had long hair. So I wanted to see the blasters and, and uh, fear at the whiskey. Mm. And oh. I, they, and I couldn't get close to it because the people were yelling at me because I had long mm. hair. So uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, back when that stuff mattered to people. Oh, yes. But I, I think the nineties were really good for music, really good for music. Um, mm. 
and I like nineties music a lot and, and seventies stuff. I mean, old, I, I really like pr- old progressive rock Genesis, my favorite band. We had the pleasure of speaking to Lee Ving last year, just a few months ago. And oh, cool. boy, I was scared to talk to him. Sweet guy, sweet guy. Yeah. You know, you learn that uh, a lot of what he did on stage, he knew what he was doing to get the reaction he needed. It was part of any talk. We talked about this, you know, it was sort of a business model that he was working, but he still scared me. <laughs> yeah, he's, I, I can't imagine seeing him in person. You're right. You sort of came to be berated when they did those shows, you know, part of it. He did, he did an episode of the Fast Times TV show. Uh, I got to, Is that and right? I, was, I, I was intimidated to talk to him because yeah. you know, I knew Nicole Panter was in my, was at the loft and she was, she'd managed this band called the germs seminal LA punk band called the germs. So she knew Lee, she didn't like him. So that, that freaking fascist. Um, (laughs) But uh, I, we, we, we talked about Nicole and he didn't have coming words for her either. So, but, um, (laughs) but it was a, I got to talk to leaving. Yeah. That was neat. Oh yeah. Oh, sweet guy. He was singing a lot for us too on the interview. It was really great. Oh, cool. Uh, he wasn't singing any fear songs either though. He was singing, I don't know, Frank Sinatra and a number of other things. Right. Great voice. Um, yeah. so, so you didn't love, you don't love eighties music. You said there's a, but- there's a couple bands I love from the 80s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Okay. But you know, it's curious. So I was going to make the point that you're, you know, sort of your, I guess, post eighties life is sort of in more recent years, last 10, 20 years, proof that the 1980s perseveres. Yes. So I'm thinking about karaoke. karaoke. Explain what, explain what karaoke is. Karaoke is a live karaoke band. Yeah. Uh, it's so complicated. So there was, maybe this, don't explain it. Then. There was, there was this disco revolution in the nineties where these guys yes. started playing in nine, in eighties uh, disco cover bands. Oh, and so it was this circuit and this group of musicians and they would travel and make a pants load of money all over the country doing these bands. And so they're, then they started branching out into different genres and one of them became steel Panther um, and I played with in this other band with Darren and Russ, who ended up in Steel Panther. It was an, a, a real band, and we put a record out. But Darren, we were talking about a live karaoke band because that was sort of starting, and the technology you're able to do that. So yeah. Darren and I came up with the idea. Darren came up with the name karaoke, which was great. Oh, and yeah. the conceit was that it was Corey Ham and Corey Feldman and Corey Hart. Um, <laughs> Michael Jackson had promised us an opening slot in. <laughs> on his next tour, if mm-hmm. we could learn to play all these songs. So, and so we had on eighties wigs and members only jackets and stuff like that. We've since dispensed with that, but um, I see. it was, it's a fun time. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I bring up karaoke because, you know, I noticed, I note first that you started on eighties music, mm-hmm. even though you say that you don't, you know, you didn't care for much of it. You've expanded your catalog back to the sixties through today as a radio station right. would say. Um, but then, you know, you mentioned uh, some of the folks that were karaoke and part of the Thornbirds, the band that you had played with, uh, with members of, ultimate members of Steel Panther. Steel Panther, their whole gig right now is, you know, recapturing probably music you hated in the 1980s. No, I, I, I liked a lot. I mean, I, I mean, Van Halen was great. Okay. Great. Yeah. I mean, there's some great stuff in the 80s, extreme Van Halen. But, but I, what's great about Steel Panther is that they, they operate. And there's no one doing what they do. The, and the the closest thing to them is that was this band called Shanana. I love Shanana. Sure. Yeah, they're sort of. I've, yeah. Like, were they a '50s band, or were they making right. fun of it? Or and you could you could enjoy it on all these different levels. And the same thing with Steel Panther. Yeah. I've been to I've been to shows where they've played five songs 
and talk for the rest of the hour and a half. And it's <laughs> one of the best comedy shows. And the audience was, was down with it yeah. and loved it. But also because they're doing parody, but they can play it. Yeah. You know, they, and the, the songs Russ writes for them are amazing songs, that genre. And they can, they can play that stuff. And they have the admiration of those people who did that. And it's not, you know, it's people make fun of magic. You just go, bah, 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 bah. Yeah. <laughs> don't have the skill to make fun of magic. But if you have the skill to make fun of something, I, I have an infinite respect for them. And so I have yeah. infinite respect for the Steel Panther guys because they're great musicians. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love Shanana as a kid. I, mean, I got the chance to meet John Bauman a couple of times. Wow. And you're right. He would appear as that Bowser character on Hollywood Squares, you know, or on a, he'd show up on a talk show and he's still Bowser. You thought right. you weren't sure where the line was or if there was one. Right. And he's, yeah. And he is like a Juilliard trained pianist. So. Oh, you know, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. I, I, yeah. I was with him once. He was just rocking out on a piano. Oh gosh. Amazing. Um, but again, you know, talking about Steel Panther. Yes. They're not only do, you know, they're writing these songs. Oh, and I bring up Steel Panther because, you know, you've co-written songs for Steel Panther. You've directed early music videos for Steel Panther. Um, so again, it seems like the eighties cannot be contained. It's not mere <laughs> nostalgia. Sure, you love the 70s films and you grew up in the 70s, but look at this. The 80s is what's keep it, you're keeping alive. We thank you. I don't, I don't get all the women I want. I get all the women I want. <laughs> Steel Panther gets all the women they want, though. You know that. They're all um, married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the characters do, as far as we yes, know. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. uh, you know, so, you, so recently, um, and, and this all seems to be tied to you, the, the uh, Corey Taylor video that you were recently a part of. The story in the video being that there's first a band, you know, that's dressed as characters who gets rejected. Right, right. They're, oh. they're sort of, a, they're, they're, who's the young the oh, kids yeah. who uh, sound like Led Zeppelin? Uh, uh, Ray says Greta Van Fleet. He texted me that. Yes, Greta Van Fleet. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Oh, I wish Ray could be part of this. this he loves Steel Panther. He's seen <laughs> him in concert a number of times. Uh, he loves punk. He totally fanboyed over Lee Ving when we had him on the show. Um, nice. He loves, he loves your work, of course. Um, but um, interesting in the story in the video that you have these posers, you know, sort of. I, well, I guess I shouldn't even say that. They're authentic for themselves. They get yeah. thrown out. Your character throws them out. Corey Taylor, actually, with his band who actually recorded this song comes in. They ultimately get thrown out. And Steel Panther, it suggested they're going to take over. I think it's interesting in this video is that, of course, the music never changes. It's always the same song. But there's something about you like it what's dictating whether you like it or not is the performance. Right. I don't know what my point was. I had a point. But there's a, you know, my son who, who is 11, well, like Billy Eilish or, or whoever will come on the, the radio and he'll go, ah, it's horrible. I hate it. <laughs> and, and, and I think she's actually good. Um, I, I, I wouldn't sit around and listen to her music, but I often, I, years ago, I realized I would listen to a song and think, if my favorite band, if King's X was playing this song, would I like it? Mm. If it if it was Helen Red or whoever, yeah, some some pop pop diva or whatever. But if it was King's X playing it, would I enjoy the song? And so I try to it sort of made, helped me grow up as far as not being a dick about music, and yeah. I, I try to impart that to him. You know, listen to a good song. Good song is a good song, no matter what genre it is. It, it, there may be interesting changes or interesting concept and works. And I think that might be a little bit what what Corey's video is about. Hmm. Good music is good, but I, you know, I tend to be 
of your more of your son's mind where I'm like, I tell people, and this, it's only a little bit of, it's only slightly hyperbolic. I stopped listening to any music around 92, probably because it stopped sounding like the eighties music by then. It's not entirely <laughs> true. I agree. If you hear a good song, it's a good song. It can't be denied, but the most problem I have with new music and I'm a big hip hop fan, certainly from the 1980s, a lot of or rock. I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of a lot of genres of music, but one thing about the 1980s music is in spite of the fact that we were really honestly afraid of being bombed by the Soviet union at any point, right. our music, our films were mostly light and airy and everything's fantastic in spite of economic turmoil and, you know, jobless rates and, it's fascinating to me that that was the case, but I guess now the flip side is, you know, we, we have similar challenges these days and the music seems like really depressing to me. You know, the rap yeah. music or pop music, it's like a bummer and minor keys and people are mumbling and I don't know what they're complaining about. It's, that's why I can't tell. <laughs> that yeah, that was, that was the weird thing about the 90s, which was such a prosperous decade, but all the music was sad and angry and, you know, I'm, I'm mad at my parents' music. Yeah. Um, which is, there's a place for that, but I agree. Well, Dean, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all of your contributions to not only what you did in the 1980s, but what you've done to keep the 80s alive. <laughs> we'll do it again. And um, maybe Ray will get off of dial-up and go uh, DSL. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you're back. Yeah. So that was, well, I feel I feel bad even saying it was great to talk to Dean Cameron. Cause this, Mark, is, this is total bull****. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. This uh, it's mystifying too, because people don't know necessarily. We have the same internet company provider. The worst part about this is yeah. I could hear everything that was going oh. on, but I couldn't respond. Oh, and you couldn't see me, but it's, I could hear everything that was said. It's like those stories of people in a coma in a hospital bed. <laughs> yeah. It's like I was floating in the sky, looking down at my own body. You just can't respond. Oh, you know, it was terrible too, because Dude, he brought up some uh, things that I was like, oh, Ray's got a good comment for this. When he was talking about seeing fear, you know, in clubs in LA. And oh. Dude, I was, I was dropping some colorful language. <laughs> I was so angry. Oh. And then he talked about, uh, Rockula came up. Yes. And I was like, I so wanted to talk to him about Rockula and Miracle Beach. Yeah. And the internet just me back over. Hey, 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 hey. Awful. This isn't a kid's show. So, yeah. Well, hey, you heard him say he'll come back. He'll come back. And there's, look, there's so much to talk so. to this guy about, I think, that, you know. Hey, I, I enjoyed being a, a listener for a change. Yeah. It was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, today on the show, we talked about a lot of movies from the 80s that became TV shows. And we focused on the ones that were kind of terrible because those were ones we didn't remember and would be more fun to sort of reminisce about. And then we talked to Dean Cameron and you got to learn a lot because you couldn't do anything else. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if we've actually proven anything about the 1980s. We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt yeah. that being a listener, which yeah. I experienced oh, uh -huh. on our 1980s podcast wow. is quite amazing. <laughs> Hey, now we know. We weren't sure. <laughs> I, I had my doubts, but now I know for sure. Now we can carry on. And with that, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.